Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of The Squad Room. I'm your host, Garrett Tesla. I'm an active duty patrol sergeant in Southern California. The Squad Room is about developing, optimizing, and most importantly, maintaining the health and wellness of law enforcement officers around the world. Health and wellness mean a lot of things, and I explore it all here. How can we maintain and improve our physical health, our mental health, our emotional health, our mindfulness, even our leadership? The show is about my journey as a law enforcement officer trying to get better by evaluating my own life and by reaching out to experts to see what I can learn from them. I talk to other cops, doctors, military leaders, even meditation experts, anyone who can be a force multiplier in my fitness. Thanks for being with us. Great. Get ready for another great show. Today we have former Green Beret Aaron Baruga on the show, founder of Gorilla Approach Firearms Training. Stay with us. All right, welcome to episode 36 of The Squad Room. I'm your host, Garrett Tesla. Like I said, I'm an active duty patrol sergeant in Southern California. To learn more about me or my history, check out episodes one and two to hear my whole backstory. Before we jump right into the show, I want to thank our sponsors for this episode, SB Tactical and the iCombat Active Shooter Training System. The iCombat Training System is an active shooter and firearms qualification system. Now, the beauty of this system is that it doesn't require any site prep. And there's no ammo cost. It's completely mobile. Uh, even uh, my department has used it in uh, vehicle interdiction, actually. So you can even use it from a helicopter. That's how cool it is. Now, how you ask, it's like a laser tag for cops. Uh, each, out, each officer is outfitted with gears and sensors that go over their uniform, and it fits any combination of uniform out there. So if you're a SWAT officer and you wear a bulky tack vest, no problem. It'll fit. Plain clothes and narcotics, again, no problem. It's, it'll fit. It's fully adjustable. You can learn more about iCombat training systems at sbtackle.com sbtactical.com. They're uh, veteran-owned and American-made. Now, speaking of uh, veteran-owned, I have a veteran with me, Aaron Baruga, former Green Beret. Welcome to the show, Aaron. Thanks for having me, Garrett. Now, uh, a pleasure f- uh, to have you here. I'm excited about this because we actually don't uh, know each other. We met about, what, 15 minutes ago? <laughs> <laughs> I've seen you on the internet through <laughs> social media. As, as have I. So I know you just about as much as I know uh, a bunch of other people. Right, so you have the same familiarity with me as you might with like Taylor Swift. <laughs> <laughs> is she listening to this? Is she- I, that'd be kind of cool if she yeah. is, but I, I highly doubt it. Right. Um, she's probably more likely to follow you um, because you're the you're the social media guru of the two of us. If there is to, if there is such a thing, but um, anyway, so I, I, we haven't met. So I'm looking forward to this because uh, I want to get to know you. And uh, usually, you know, I have this. I, I record something in advance with a little bio about the person and what we're going to learn and what we're going to talk about that sort of stuff. But because you're here live and in the flesh, I th- I, I want to learn about it along with. My guests, or not my guests, my listeners, you're my guest. So, um, like I mentioned, you're the founder of Gorilla Approach Firearms Training, and that's where you, that's what you're doing now. Right? Yes, that's um, correct. Amongst other things. But there's a there's going to be an interesting story about how you, how you got to that. You didn't just wake up one day and decide you're going to go teach people uh, how to uh, go shoot the firearms, shoot the firearms and all that. So, what? Uh, tell me uh, your story of... of of what got you to that point? And maybe an easier way to answer that question is um, we mentioned your former service you're, and that you're a veteran. Tell me about the story, about how and why maybe you decided to join the military. So we'll go all the way back to when my dad got back from Vietnam and met my mom. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> We're not going to go that far back. Uh, my dad actually wasn't in Nam. Uh, every, every male on my side of the family, though, did serve going back to my grandfather he's a filipino um immigrated in illegally in the 1930s um and he was just looking for work up and down the coast in california 
and uh, World War II broke out, um, or excuse me, Pearl, Pearl Harbor happened, and him being from the Philippines, he saw that, and then he saw uh, Japan invade the Philippines, and he and his brothers were like, all right, well, I guess we're going to join the army. You know, like a very, you know, kind of uh, a red-blooded immigrant joins the military kind of story and narrative. So he joins the military, and he was in the 101st, and one day they were in formation, and the officers were coming through the ranks, and they were just pulling out every single brown guy, basically. (laughs) They were like, all right, you, come here, you, come here, you, come here. And they're like, all right, who's from, you know, Malaysia? Who's, or I guess it wasn't Malaysia back then, or was there? Oh boy, you're you're asking the wrong guy. <laughs> I know that, <laughs> I was not expecting a geography quiz. Well, I know I know in like you know post World War II that entire area restructured. Right, which state was what? Okay, someone's gonna already someone will somebody fix this will on correct us. Like, you don't even how Filipino are you? You don't even know. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Internet. Please correct yeah. us. Someone yes. will take it. <laughs> We're not even talking about shooting, and you're already correcting us. Right. Yeah. Um. So he he joined the military. He got pulled out for uh what was going to be uh, um, a special missions unit that was actually performing uh, what is essentially the special forces mission today, uh, you know, unconventional warfare where they were shaping the environment for MacArthur's invasion forces to go into the Philippines. Um, so I'm going to get to actually my background. No, this is awesome. Yeah. I'm, I love In it. 20 so. minutes, we'll get to why I joined the military. <laughs> That's fine. It's a long form <laughs> podcast. The tape doesn't end, so it's fine. So he, you know, he goes through all this awesome, you know, commando training, survival training. He goes through airborne school. He goes through airborne school in like in the 30s or excuse me, the 40s when airborne school was, you know, like still like, yeah. a, 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 thi- like a prestigious thing. You know, I think 99%, fuck it, 100% of the people that you ask today who have gone through u.s army jump school yeah. or airborne school they're gonna be like oh, i don't know that was like it was, I no mean, big deal yeah you like fell out of an airplane you had to run <laughs> five miles at like a you know nine minute mile pace or something right. you know um so there was still i think more of like the prestige of like this is an experimental unit this is you know band of brothers type right of, 101st type, yeah Kurahi, right yeah <laughs> pretty much so he got assigned to that special mission unit and then they snuck into the philippines uh a, a submarine you know they loaded up in a submarine it surfaced near the pi they rode to shore and they cached a lot of stuff and they started going in and just, just building their network making contacts with a lot of the gorillas and that is a story that stuck with myself and the three other male uh, cousins i have in my family um, and also their father. Um, so my uncle was uh, in 173rd Lurse in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. He's got some interesting stories about that. And then going down to my generation, I have three cousins on uh, my uncle's side who uh, one was in the 101st, one was in uh, the 173rd, and another was in uh, First ID. And so it was kind of something that was in our blood. Um, I don't, you know, joining the military was never something that was on my radar until 9-11 happened. You know, just like a lot of guys in our generation that were compelled to service after that, you know, when I was in high school, uh, I was a junior, I was a sophomore when the towers fell. And after that, there was just no doubt in my mind uh, what I was going to do once I graduated, you know. Um, and, you know, I, I had the option to go to college, you know, I, I could go to school if I wanted to, I could have done that, but it's just, it, it, nothing else seemed um, 
important at that point other than, you know, serving. And mm-hmm. I didn't I didn't know anything about, you know, Iraq or non-state actors or, you know, sovereignty of different states and whether or not, you know, you know, terrorist organizations are able to influence, uh, you know, domestic attacks. You know, I, I didn't know right. any. I was just an 18 year old kid that was like, no, nope, country needs people to go fight and go fight. Uh, so that's how I ended up joining the services, uh, graduated from high school, um, knew that, you know, every single guy on my side of the family had been either in the combat arms in the infantry, uh, or in my grandfather's uh, case, you know, uh, you know, a very special assignment, kind of a precursor to, uh, special forces in a way. Yeah. So I originally went into the recruiter's office and I was like, Hey, you know, let's, uh, let's get me an infantry contract. And then they were like, well, would you be interested in this special forces contract? And I was like, yeah, right on. Absolutely. Um, so it was, a it was a unique contract that they had at the time. It was, uh, it's called the 18 X-ray special forces, uh, recruit. It's, a uh, a lot of guys from my generation that ended up joining the military. We got that contract and allowed us to go straight from basically basic training to airborne school to selection. It was just a meat grinder, uh, up front to, you know, Hey, if we can get guys that are capable to perform this mission, then let's, let's get them in there. And if they can make the cut, they make the cut. If not, then, you know, they go out to the needs of the army and, you know, proceed from there. So that's something I always misunderstood then about recruiting is that, and maybe that's because it's new with around the time that you joined was that you were offered that track so early. You didn't have to go to the regular infantry and then apply to get into special forces from there. Yeah. The traditional, uh, route that most guys would take is, you know, they go into the military, they go to like Ranger battalion or they go into the infantry, uh, they spend a few years there and then they apply for selection and then they either get picked up or they don't get picked up. Um, the 18 extra contract wasn't particularly new um, when I uh, signed or when I was able to apply for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's guys that were in the 80s and the early 90s who joined the military as a part of what we called the SF baby program where, you know, basically straight off the streets. And there's a lot of pushback in the military, you know, as to like, you know, are you picking the right people? And a lot of guys in SF, you know, not not a lot of guys, some guys in FSF, SF, FS, FS, we're fucking special. <laughs> <laughs> we're F, we're um, some of the older guys are like, you know, there's this big SEAL Green Beret uh, rivalry in the military. And they're like, oh, that's just what the SEALs do. They, you know, let their guys in real young. And it's, you know, but the, the program has proven to be uh, amazing. You attract you know, the best way I can dry, or describe a special forces soldier is it's a professional soldier who hates the army. You know, a lot of the bureaucracy and like the unnecessary uh, administrative structure that just mm-hmm. kind of like, um, you know, uh, um, uh, dulls the performance capability of these guys um, you find in the big army. And it's there for a reason. Um but so, yeah, it attracts different dudes. You know, there's guys that, you know, had PhDs or master's degrees. There's guys who, you know, didn't have PhDs and master's degrees, but they have very unique backgrounds in that. Mm-hmm. Maybe they, you know, lived outside of the country, you know, most of their, uh, you know, teenage life or whatever. But they have very unique skills. So it, it attracts someone to the military that doesn't want to be in full metal jacket or, you know, <laughs> yeah. they don't want to uh, have a sweet, high and tight haircut right. or whatever. So what is it do you think about you specifically that that either attracted you to that, but also maybe they saw something in you or in your background where they offered you that? I think, uh, well, when I was 18, I don't think I really knew a lot, um, but I knew that if I was going to be a part of the fight, I wanted to be with the guys that were, 
you know, um, at, you know, tip of the spear is such an overused phrase, but that's, you know, that's what they were. Uh, you know, I, I was reading a lot about the, uh, different actions and the exploits that the Green Berets were having in Afghanistan, especially Afghanistan. That was, uh, you know, that was a paradigm shift for special operations. Mm-hmm. Uh, when those guys went in and they invaded, um, and also with Iraq when those guys invaded and it was, uh, amazing when I actually got to, the initial phases of my special forces training, a lot of those uh, guys that were in the initial push, you know, the guys that were in these incredibly ambiguous and hostile environments, they were the guys teaching uh, me and my classmates um, going through. So it was very inspiring, you know, just, you know, just hear these stories Mm -hmm. about these guys have like, you know, the horse soldiers in Afghanistan. That's one of the uh, most, I think, uh, prolific uh, narratives with, you know, green berets in Afghanistan were, Mm -hmm. you know, basically just a, a very small group of guys were able to overthrow a country um, working with the CIA and some conventional units, but small group of guys and their ingenuity and grit. Yeah. Um, so I, I learned about that and that influenced my decision a lot. And, you know, it was, you know, they said it was the most challenging thing. And I said, all right, you know, let's, let's do this. Let's go. You know, that's intense. Yeah. So uh, when did you actually like, when did you ship out for lack of a better term? 2004, I graduated high school in 2004 and uh, so we were about two and a half years into the fight at this point. Yeah, we were about two years into the fight. Um, so, you know, there was no clear sign that this was going to be something that was over. Um, right. Despite, you know, the initial strategies up front. Despite the landing on the <laughs> on the carrier deck. <laughs> Mission and, accomplished. Yeah. I love seeing that picture in so many different memes. And, oh, yeah. Or just using it with like in group texts I'm in with buddies where we're, we could be talking about anything. You send a picture of like mission accomplished, <laughs> like planning my bachelor party or something. Yeah. Mission accomplished. Like, all right, cool. So what you mentioned the selection process, but what once you're in, once they say, okay, you're going on the fast track into into special forces, you you mentioned jump school, but what are all basic, obviously, right? And you start with basic, but then what are the other um, certifications you need to get? Yeah, yeah. So you you everyone has to go through basic training, and um, you know, basic training is they they got four months to teach you how to be in the army. So it's you know, a lot of guys go in there with the expectation that, you know, they're going to, you know, be turned into these, you know, killing machines or it's, it's going to be it, it but it, it's an incredibly, uh, underwhelming experience. It under delivers, uh, but it's, it's designed for a way to, you know, you got to take someone from, or you got to take uh, a platoon of guys from very different backgrounds and teach them how to be in the army. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the standards are a little different. You need them to be able to you know, salute officers and, you know, respect NCOs and right. some marksmanship stuff in there and some basic tactics, but it's mostly just to groom guys to be like, Hey, this is how you functioned in the military. It's like, yeah. all right, roger that. Uh, after that proceeded to airborne school. Um, and then after that proceeded to what was known as SOPSI, I believe it's still called SOPSI. It's a special operations preparation course. And it is a 30 day meat grinder where you, you go from having drills or drill sergeants babysit you to you have these special forces cadre. Again, like my guys were the dudes that were riding horses in Afghanistan in 2002. And they just, you know, they take the kitty gloves off and it is, uh, you know, they're looking for the guys that are going to be suitable candidates to go to selection, not mm-hmm. to get selected, just to even like, you know, go to selection. <clears throat> so it's very high attrition rate. And, you know, one of the things I learned about physical fitness then was if you treat guys like they're capable of doing uh you know really hard tasks 
if you if you set the bar high you know that inspires a certain type of dude to you know want to overachieve and go to that level versus where like you know at like a basic training or something where it's more lowest common denominator standards where again they're just trying to get bodies through right um it's it's different it can be kind of uh um it it kills the kind of the motivation factor but again it's designed for a, a different thing so when we got to sopsy and it was just like day one you know it's like holy shit man <laughs> this is like it sucks but it's awesome you know it's like all right this is cool like this is where i want to be like i want to be around the dudes that are like we're going this yeah. is this is it so uh finished sopsy went to selection that was another 30 day uh process and I won't spend too much time talking about it because I think there's like enough Discovery Channel shows about it or um, things uh, where, you, you know, it, it's been a very well discussed thing. But you go there and it, but what, you know, I found unique about it is the army is real big on, you know, like, you know, be the team. You know, you got to, you know, you got to, you got to look out for the guy on your left and your right, which I agree with. But one of the things that sets, you know, special operations apart is the caliber of the individual that they're dealing with where it's like, hey, you don't leave the guy on your left and your right behind, but we're going to set the bar up here to say who gets to be the guy on your left and your right. Yeah. So it's very motivating again, to be around those type of individuals where, you know, you're watching, you know, week after week, you know, dudes drop from the class Mm -hmm. or dudes just quit. And you're like, all right, we're still here. So it's very, uh, motivating. It seems like it'd be motivating in the sense that you want to prove yourself as being worthy of being the guy on the left or the right, Mm -hmm. right. To your part, to your, to your squad mate or, or yeah, your teammate is like you want to show it to them that you're capable of it almost more than yourself. Yeah, absolutely, and that that is something that definitely carries down the line with you. And I'm sure you've seen this too in law enforcement. Is you know, it's not about you know you. It's about you know the organization. It's about the team. It's about mm-hmm. you know that dude on your left and your right. They are more important than you because you know if you're if you have that mentality and they have that mentality, you know you're gonna have a good day. Yeah. Um, or at least you can control that aspect of, you know, what happens in the mission. But yeah, I think that's very important. So a lot's made of like buds and, Mm -hmm. um, I'll ask you a bit about that, but, but the equivalent for you, for the army is, is what is it? Sorry. What was it? What'd you call it? So, um, buds is, I think it's like a six month process. Um, so there, I will give the seals credit that I think that they have, you know, one of the, uh, most physically demanding, um, uh, weeding out phases in their pipeline. You Mm -hmm. know, it, you know, buds is just from my understanding, you know, from the seals I've worked with and talked to, um, the ones that haven't gone on to make movies yet. Uh, it's a a shorter and shorter list. (laughs) Yeah. Um, is it's just a meat grinder, but it's a different type of heart. It's, you know, it's, I think it's what, you know, separates SF from a lot of the different other types of special operations is, you know, like, like out of buds, you know, there's just a dude constantly in your face, breathing down your neck, you know, mm-hmm. for the Rangers going through, um, uh, rip, there's, you know, constantly someone just breathing down your neck and that creates a different kind of stress level. Uh, it's effective for measuring different things, but when you get to SF, you know, no one's, yelling at you at selection you know there's only like two days where they amp it up to that uh like you know drill sergeant style like you know i'm in your face yelling at you but Mm -hmm. what they're trying to assess is they don't want a guy that's motivated by someone being in their face um one of the things they say is the the man that needs to be driven is not worth the driving so they're looking for the individual who doesn't 
you know, get motivated by having that immediate stimulus in their face. And what they do is they just make the course so hard that <laughs> you'll be, <laughs> they'll just be like, we don't need to scream in your face. We're just going to make you go ruck for 20 miles a day for, you know, t- uh, 10 days or something. It's like, all right, cool. I'm like, Roger that. I can, I can deal with that kind of stress. Yeah. And again, I think it, that's what sets, you know, at that initial, um, foundation, um, uh, shapes your mentality of, you know, what this organization is about, you know, mm-hmm. you're going to be in some ambiguous environments, uh, working through a cultural barrier, working through a language barrier, working through a cognitive barrier with a lot of indigenous personnel. And they need a guy who can problem solve and doesn't need to be, you know, yelled at to be mm-hmm. motivated. Uh, not that there's anything wrong with that for, you know, stress inoculation or something. It's very useful. Right. Um, but you know, different guys respond to it. So buds I think is, you know, very difficult up front. Uh, again, I'm not someone who's attended it. So like, internet's getting ready to. <laughs> no, no, no. This is a sympathetic <laughs> group. Yeah. So, but like, uh, Sopsy was kind of like that grinder style where mm-hmm. they're in your face. They're, they're like half treating you like adult half, you know, in your face screaming at you. Um, because in the initial phases, I think it is very important to get rid of the person who can't handle being yelled at. They need to identify that person and get rid sure. of them so that they can proceed on with like the real, you know, meat and potatoes of training. Um, so I think that would be the biggest difference between like selection. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the rest of the special forces training, you know, the, the other, you know, year to 18 months is, uh, again, just big boy rules where the material, um, or the exercises are just so difficult that, you know, if you want to be there, you want to be there. If not, you can quit. Yeah. So, uh, this is gonna be a stupid question and I apologize in advance cause I just don't have this opportunity to clarify this sometimes, but the difference between, uh, Rangers, Green Berets, and Delta. Mm-hmm. Can you explain that to me real quick? So <laughs> the difference is that SF is better than Rangers. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, I don't mean it that way. Just, they have different <laughs> no, missions. No, right? I, I, would, I just said that. If there's any <laughs> Bat Boys listening, they're like, ooh. ooh. Fire it up. <laughs> yeah. So the difference uh, comes down to the doctrinal uh, mission alignment. So mm-hmm. Rangers are you know they're the premier light infantry unit in the u.s military they are though that is a hard hitting group of dudes that is some you know highly motivated you know very homogenous organization of young guys that are hitters you know they they are a hammer and they will go uh, mess things up and you know their doctrinal mission aligns with airfield seizure that uh, you know, and, and what airfield seizure is, you know, they jump in, they would secure an airfield and then that would allow for follow on forces or, you know, some other, uh, cool mission unit to come in and, mm-hmm. uh, set up a foundation to work from. But those guys, yeah, they're, you know, they are the tip of the spear going in to the breach as a hammer. Um, and that actually changed a lot for, um, them as, uh, the wars proceeded in Iraq and Afghanistan, you started to see uh, a lot of the ranger platoons kind of turn into like these mini, um, uh, I'd say like Delta force elements where they're just going out and doing a lot of direct, direct action hits. Mm-hmm. And that's, uh, I think one of the biggest differences between Rangers and SF is Rangers are, uh, doctrinally aligned to do a lot more, uh, direct action stuff. Whereas the green berets, they're designed to do, everything leading up to uh the invasion so going back to the afghanistan example you know a bunch of guys or not a bunch of guys <laughs> like a, a small handful yeah a small handful yeah, of guys uh these you know 10 man 12 man special forces odas 
would link up with you know someone in a, another government organization or from someone from the CIA, and they would go into these non-permissive environments and link up with the indige. You know, so <laughs> I'm sorry, I just kept non-permissive. Yeah. <laughs> That sounds that's, like a very nice, polite way of saying a nasty not, hole of the, yeah, in the earth. You're not. It's either illegal for you to be here, <laughs> yeah. or, um, and it's a it's a different mission uh, set in that you know you go into these places where you're not supposed to be, and you have to link up with these resistance forces where you don't know, you know, if they're vetted. You know, mm-hmm. you don't know. Uh, if they're going to, you know, turn a gun on your back. Right. And you're going to go out and you're going to train them. You're going to lead them and you're going to turn them into a, a pretty potent fighting force. So from, you know, a big strategic level from the Department of Defense's point of view, it's very cost effective to send out a 10 man ODA to go raise a battalion of uh, dudes fighting in flip flops with AKs. Like know? Northern Alliance, right? Yeah, I mean, that's pretty, who you yeah, probably be absolutely. talking about here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it and it, you know, allows a lot of different, uh, excuse me, different strategic level objectives to be met when you have these guys that are kind of just like, you know, moving around either in their gun trucks or just with a ruck on their back and they're able to uh, really develop things on the ground. Mm-hmm. So it's it's very different um, mission sets. SF still does do a lot of the direct action missions, um, but our primary, um, you know, our doctrinal mission is to be aligned with some kind of uh, indigenous force. Interesting. And so that's where the difference is between Rangers and SF. Uh, and then with Delta, you know, those guys are, uh, they're the, uh, premier counterterrorism, you know, unit, uh, arguably in the world. Um, you know, um, unless you're asking like some guys from DevGrew who smoked, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I shot Bin Laden, <laughs> but yeah, they're, um, they're the premier, you know, counterterrorism unit. They, uh, they pull from SF and Rangers and, you know, they uh, they get to do a lot of the cool guy stuff. You know, I'm they, not going to speak on their behalf. But, well, no, yeah, yeah, but I just, I mean, I, I, I think it's fascinating that, the, I mean, someone thought of this long ago, but that, you know, each, each has a role mm-hmm. and then um, they each play that role very well. Mm-hmm. And that you, it's like, you can't replace uh, Rangers with Delta to achieve the same. I mean, you probably probably could but there's i mean like you say doctrinally there there's there's a path for them and a purpose for them mm-hmm. each individually that is above and or separate from each other so it's not like they're competing with each other for these yeah and it's a and it's the also the other thing too is like you know a lot of uh sf guys would probably make horrible rangers a lot of rangers would probably make horrible sf guys it's just depending on the personality and the mission yeah. set like there's you know there's a lot of um you know not direct action stuff that sf does kind of behind the scenes that is you know i think a lot of it's cool and pretty interesting, but it might not attract uh, that 22 year old, you know, mm-hmm. sergeant in Ranger Battalion who just like wants to kick doors and sprint off the back of, you know, uh, Blackhawks and right. CH 47s. You know, it's very different mentality. So it's, uh, you know, whatever those guys are into. And if you're in that community, you can definitely have access to whatever kind of career path you want. If you're in Ranger Battalion, you can go to SF and you can go to Delta, or if you're in SF, you can go to Delta. Um, mm-hmm. So. All right, so I mean, you you go through all the schools. You obviously finished and everything like that, and you get um, you get your first orders. Mm-hmm. Where do, where are they? They're to Fort Lewis, Washington. Uh, I finished language school, learned Indonesian, which really? was awesome because every firefight I got in in Iraq and Afghanistan, I was using Indonesian just like 
con- no, I wasn't. I was, <laughs> I was like, I was waiting for the I, end of that. I was like, no, I never. I never. where this goes. <laughs> I never used it once. So the way the SF groups are aligned is, uh, well, they're regionally aligned. So first group deals with Asia, uh, third group deals with uh, Africa, or which is actually uh, switching now. Tenth's doing a lot more stuff in Africa. Uh, fifth group does deals with the Middle East. Seventh deals with South America, and tenth uh, deals with Europe. So. You know, each group has a specific set of languages that they learn. But once the wars kicked off, it was kind of like, all right. All in. Yeah. Well, it makes sense that you would learn a language if your job is to work with indigenous people to Mm -hmm. get them trained up. Yeah. And that, yeah, that goes back to the the doctrinal, you know, mission Mm -hmm. for SF is, you know, we need to have guys that are in there with very limited resources to be able to execute the mission. Whether it's, you know, training dudes to go fight the Taliban or, you know, trading, you know, uh, commandos in the Philippines to mm-hmm. do, you know, whatever they're yeah. <laughs> going to be doing over there. So Fort Lewis, that's actually where my dad did his basic uh, before Vietnam. Okay. He got trained up there uh, after getting drafted, actually. Um, so you'd go to, you're in Fort Lewis, and then um, you end up doing three combat tours or more? Or how, how many? Well, I do Iraq and Afghanistan. I did some stuff in Asia. Um, technically, what we did in the Philippines could be considered – a combat tour. So let me let me give some context on this. So in first group, we do a lot of stuff in Asia, as I was just saying. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Philippines has actually been an area where you know we've had we've lost some guys in the south. Uh, there's a huge uh, extremist problem in the south, the yeah. southern provinces. And when you know GWAT kicked off, first was you know they were in the Philippines and they were doing a lot of work down there. Um, GWAT's global war on global terror, right? war on right. terror. Yeah. Um, so doing a lot of work down there, training the commandos, training the police forces, training just their infantry. And, you know, we, we've lost some guys there. Um, when I got back from Iraq and I was in ranger school, there was two guys in my battalion that got killed, uh, in, in an IED strike. Uh, prior to that, there was guys getting ambushed. Um, there was actually, so there was, I believe someone got either a silver star or uh, 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 a bronze star with a V device mm-hmm. because they got ambushed in the Philippines and like dudes were like running up to the gun trucks and this this guy was just like smoking people. Really? So there's been some valor awards handed yeah. out for the action down there, but you don't typically hear about it uh, up front. So you don't, but then I, you know, I've had other guests on. I've had a lot. I've had a few seals on mm-hmm. uh, the show, and um, were they lifting weights while you're interviewing them? <laughs> Well, they're former SEALs, yeah. so they're all, you know. <laughs> um, but all good guys. But a lot of them have actually done tours in the in Asia or the Philippines, too. Yep. And then one of my favorite books on the general topic is um, is by a SEAL, The Heart and the Fist, mm-hmm. uh, by Eric Reitens. And he had a tour to the Philippines, too, where he talks about mm-hmm. having similar similar experiences. So it's interesting. You don't, you don't tie the Philippines into that. Yeah, GWAT at all. Yeah, and it, it's been a big uh, part of it. It's just that, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan and Pakistan and North Africa have been so uh, much further in the front. Mm-hmm. So with regards to, you know, I don't consider that a combat deployment. I mean, where we were at, the work we were doing, we knew, like, where, you know, the different insurgent camps were and how close they were to us. But, you know, I, and we were there long enough for it to be considered a combat deployment. I don't really think it was a combat deployment, though. Okay. But there's some guys in, a, in first group that will be like, yeah, I've got, like, you know, three combat deployments like all right to where <laughs> i'm not saying that you know that work's not important but it, right, it, it, right. it just kind of but iraq and afghanistan certainly yeah where Dif- in iraq in uh 
I'm just going to hold back on okay. talking about oh, that. Yeah. I didn't think about <laughs> <Yeah>. that. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm, I mean, and for the listeners, not because it's like I have, you know, anything super cool, but like, you know, uh, you know, social media is crazy how dudes are finding each other. And I don't know. I just. That's fair. Yeah. That's you know. that. I didn't even think about that, though. That, that That's totally, totally. And then, but Afghanistan as well, right? In Afghanistan. Yeah. So um, how long is a typical deployment? SF deployment, yeah. By the time I was in the rotation, deployments were between ten and twelve months for us. Oh, that's pretty long, right? That wait, did you say that's not very? No, that that is pretty long, right? I mean, some Uh, of them were yeah shorter. Well, you know, the conventional military was doing like sixteen months. Oh, it was okay. Yeah, those guys had it. uh, That's a long time to be gone. Really burns out the force. So we, you know. I, I have been told that there's SF uh, battalions that only deployed for six months. I've <laughs> I was never got to be a part of that, but yeah, I was always gone for either, yeah, for That's a good ten, amount of time. Yeah, ten months, and yeah, that that was the length of the, the deployments. So, um, this question will get to uh, the, the the training and what you're doing now eventually, but I wanted to ask, like, can you to tell me or describe to me about the first time you were shot at? The first time I was shot at, um, even if you even remember it at this point, yeah. <laughs> might be this a- is where I, this is where I have my, uh, like the, my veteran hat on my American flag hat. And I just like tip it a little bit. I'm like, well, first time yeah. I got shot at, um, the first time I got shot at it, you don't, you're like, is this happening? Like, oh yeah, this is happening. This is happening. <laughs> So it's it's one of those things where you train to perform a mission and you know a lot of the training I got in SF I was you know very fortunate that I had you know like I said amazing leaders um we tend to have a bigger budget and ammo allocation in special forces so we get to do a lot more uh team training and when you finally get to you know the big show when you finally deploy you're just like okay this is it and I would compare it to any kind of goal setting you do for yourself in life, whether it's like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm training to run a marathon or, hey, I'm, uh, you know, I want to, um, you know, learn how to surf or something. Right. And then when you finally get to that point where you achieve the goal, you're like, oh, this is it. OK. So the first time I got shot at, it was kind of that where it was like, is this really happening? Like. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. This is happening. This is happening. And then everything that I had been trained to do just kind of, you know, switch flipped. And we're performing, you know, a lot of things at a subconscious level. Mm-hmm. And you're, you know, reacting to the situation and then developing the situation and uh, proceeding forward to do work. And a lot of guys I've talked to, and, you know, and that wasn't just the first time I got shot at. That was like, you know, the 10th, 12th, 15th, you know, and especially like uh, in Afghanistan, a lot of times we were getting shot at. We're like, this uh okay yeah this is it because it, it goes you know through this phase of like all right is this just harassment fire so you have to figure out like okay are we are like are we just kind of piss you off yeah like are fire. we are we getting shot at <laughs> are we getting shot at or are we getting fucking shot at man so and and no one and no one else wants to like also you know you're in front of like your entire team a bunch of really type a aggressive guys yeah. you don't want to be the guy that's like we're getting shot at and then <laughs> you know you're the cherry on the team we're like shut the fuck up it's just harassment fire like Okay, but it's really close harassment fire. <laughs> Zing. Like, right, yeah. <laughs> Was that okay. RPG harassment fire? Like, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> so it's like everyone's trying to play cool and then it's just like, all right, okay, we're getting uh we're getting shot at. 
Um, so yeah, the first time was just kind of like, this is happening. Okay. This is happening. And then we just, you know, we went into reacting the contact and, uh, just going forward with the mission. So is it, it's, is it surreal every time? I, or surreal, maybe not the right word, but just kind of, uh, I think that the best way I can describe it is for like, you know, people that have not been shot at. Um, is once you get past that initial phases of like, hey, this is my first time being shot at. Hey, this is my second time being shot at. Um, is once it happens, so either, you know, you're being the one doing the shooting initially or if you're reacting to it, mm-hmm. um, you know, the switch gets flipped and you're like, all right, it's game time. I'd say it's very similar to, uh, like your mentality is very similar to uh, like an athlete, anyone who ever has played sports, you know, when you're in the middle of the game and you're just, you know, you're firing on all cylinders, you're, you're, you're plugged into, you mm-hmm. know, the basketball court or the football field, whatever it is. And you're able to read the situation and all the different variables and levers that get pulled to influence what's happening. And that's kind of like, I think the level of processing that happens very similar to, you know, when you, you get contact with the enemy. Um, and again, it's not like the, you know, first time you get shot at or like, you know, if you're on your second deployment, third deployment, whatever. And it's like, OK, it's our first time getting shot at in country because you will work through a lot of different things that are taking place. One, it's like, OK, we're getting shot at Two, What's the team dynamic taking place? And then, you know, what kind of other variables there might be. Mm-hmm. But once you get to the point where you're like, OK, I'm you know, I'm expecting to get in a gunfight. I'm getting in a gunfight. I think it's very similar to, again, like an athlete who is, you know, like, hey, I know I'm you know, in a football game right. right now. I almost said football match. <laughs> For our English listeners, yeah. they would get that. We actually yeah. have some, so they would get that. Awesome. So. <laughs> um, they're like, oh, this fucking wanker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you, you're just plugged into the environment and you're good to go. And that is, um, I've, I've done some research on this with uh, when your heart rate's at a certain level, you're mm-hmm. able to actually function a lot uh, with a lot more clarity of mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, there's something about, uh, I, I don't want to get the beats per minute wrong, but it's like, if it's at a certain beats per minute, you're able to function at a much higher level because it activates, you know, the adrenaline, mm-hmm. you know, your fight or flight mechanism. But there's also a certain point where if your heart rate goes too high, you're incapable of doing a lot of that, right. um, higher level processing. Yeah. I, um, I forget what it's called, but something, you know, it's, it's like sensory selection or something like that, where that sounds, you, I'll you, agree with that. <laughs> your, your eyes, like for us, we often get discussed about, you know, our, the shootings that we end up getting in are mm-hmm. usually very close to each other and they're very short mm-hmm. and there's not extended battles typically. And, uh, I've talked to the guys I know who've been in shootings and they all say something very similar of, you know, time slows down. Mm-hmm. Things become very clear what ha- took milliseconds in real life seemed to take an extended period of time when they actually could think through the problem as it was happening. So, you know, suspect now suspect has something in his hand, identifies that it's a gun, identifies that he's raising it. All those things that happen in a heartbeat or less. Now, now your mind is processing at such an intense level. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting that you, you have that same experience, much more intense. What, happens to you or what was your experience after it was over i mean did you coll- collapse in a heap of cortisol and adrenaline and go to sleep i mean I, you can't but how this gets to my questions about stress inoculation but how do you become comfortable with that and i'm suspecting part of that answer is training but yeah how do you, how do you get comfortable yeah with that? i you know training is obviously a very big part of that you know purposeful training and I, you know 
uh, I'll, I'll go into depth uh, a little bit later on this with how you, you know, structure purposeful training to actually prepare, uh, you know, a shooter's mind for what happens in the real world versus what just happens on the flat range. Mm-hmm. Um, but afterwards, yeah, what do you, what do you do? Um, I think that we all develop these internal uh, methods for decompression. So, uh, in Iraq, we had a very different mission. We were doing a lot more of the direct action stuff I was talking about earlier. We were going out in raids. We were, you know, driving out in trucks or flying out in helicopters. So part of the decompression method was once we were off the objective, you know, once we were on our exfil route going back to our team house, that kind of started the, uh, okay, you know, uh, the processing of what happened. Not to say that, you know, something couldn't still happen after that. You still have to be switched on, you know, because right. you could still drive over a bomb or, you know, get your bird shot at. But I think that started it. And then just having a a routine afterwards. So whether it's, you know, collecting up all the gear out of the trucks and just, you know, cleaning it or, you know, uh, administratively going in to do the reports you have to do. Something to Mm -hmm. like, you know, some kind of like uh, uh, task that's enough to keep you. Uh, your mind occupied, but it doesn't require like a deep level of thinking. Yeah. And then just talking to your guys about it. Um, I think that's what, you know, worked the best in Iraq In Afghanistan. It was a little different. We had a different mission set. We were doing, uh, what was known as village stability operations. So we had a, uh, like a Alamo camp <laughs> in the middle of nowhere. And that was, that was different because you couldn't ever leave the fight. We were on a camp that was like, half the size of a football field. There's 20 Americans there. There was uh, my ODA and an infantry squad. And we had like an Air Force cook attached to us. That was awesome because <laughs> so <laughs> I digress. But so there's this, you know, I think of like this kid who walks into the recruiter's office and is like, I'm going to join the Air Force. I'm going to, you know, be a cook. And like, I'll never have to go to combat and I'll get that <laughs> sweet college money. He finds himself, boom, right in the middle on the frontier with us in Indian country, you know, like rockets are landing inside the camp, you know, we're getting attacked all yeah. the time. And he's just like, what the what, crap what is girl going on? he piss off? <laughs> yeah. But it was just like, oh, all right, cool, you know, <laughs> right on, man. Um, but that was that was a little different with the decompression because you couldn't ever, it, you couldn't leave it. And it's a different, it's different when you go out and you fuck with somebody in their home and you fly back to a relatively like well-protected, you know, base. Yeah. It's different when you're out there by yourself and they know where you're at and they know you're cut off and you, you can't sleep. Mm -hmm. Like you can't just, you know, forget about it and go to the gym because they can shoot PKMs and stuff at the gym. So it's a little different there um, with us as far as like the decompression. And I think it's, you know, it's part of it is internal with figuring out something that works for you, whether it's just thinking about it, maybe smoking a cigarette or something. I know that's contradictory to like the whole health and fitness aspect, but just something that, um, you know, takes your mind off of it. And then just talking to your buddies about mm-hmm. it, you know, dudes, you know, like guys love to tell the war stories of like, this is what I was doing. This is what I do. And it's like, Oh, and then I jumped on the two forty, <laughs> and I did this. Like, no, it's, it's a very uh, cathartic and therapeutic thing, yeah. you know? And I think oh, cops do the same thing. Yeah. You know, yeah. Guys have to talk through it. And like, yeah. I think that's something we don't acknowledge is by talking through it, you kind of are recognizing what happened and allows you to process it to some extent. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, that's fascinating. You know, I, I started watching last night. Uh, well, I've been watching it a little bits and pieces, but uh, Korengal, Sebastian Younger's yep. follow-up documentary to mm-hmm. Restrepo, which is, a, you know, that's a well-known mm-hmm. documentary. But that, I was thinking about that last night, about just how isolated these guys are. 
out in uh, at Restrepo. And if anyone's not seen that, I highly recommend that documentary just to get a sense of what that's like being out there and just isolated. And, and you're right. Like they were talking about it actually in the piece I was watching last night about how you can never turn it off because they could start picking at you at any time mm-hmm. and you are by yourselves. I mean, who's, who's the guy on your left and your right and you. And that's, <laughs> that's about yeah. It. Yeah. That is, I, I really like that documentary. One of the things I really like about it is that it just shows that the infantry mission, you know, it is not change since you know antiquity basically mm-hmm. like it's you know hard dudes with grit and they're performing a hard mission under very harsh conditions you know yeah. that's i think it's a very uh it, it informs the public and creates a level of respect for what those guys are doing over there oh yeah um, and what you know you know, you don't have to be in special forces. You don't have to be a Navy SEAL. Like you, you know, I know a lot of like just infantry dudes. I don't mean to say just infantry dudes. Guys that are in the infantry, right? Who are did incredible things. You know, incredible right. acts of valor. Um, oh yeah, yeah very, they're all over the place. Yeah. I mean, yeah, numerous. So with these multiple tours and these and kind of coming back, what are the lessons? I mean, you talked about a little bit about it in that in that moment of how to deal with the stress. But do you have any other long term? or maybe systematic or routines that you use to deal with that kind of stress? And then what do you teach your students nowadays uh, in terms of how to deal with that stress? For clarity, you're talking about stress like... Well, stre- on- yeah, stress like um, like that, uh, you know, that, that direct action combat, mm-hmm. that kind of stress, or the stress of even just the perceived or potential threat. And mm-hmm. that's what we deal with a lot, right, for cops is that potential or perceived threat. It may mm-hmm. not be real. The guy may not actually have a gun or may not actually be shooting, but it's the possibility that what you're getting into could lead to that. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's not like as it's not as big as, you know, taking on a battalion of <laughs> Taliban, but th- in, in little bits and pieces it's I think it's corrosive too, right? So how do you how do the, how do we deal with that? Yeah, so stress is compounding and obviously it starts, you know, at the tactical level in the engagement, whether it's like you said, you have to, you know, profile someone to, or is that not the right word to use for law enforcement? You can't profile. criminally profile. Yeah, there we, we go. don't racially profile. We criminally profile. <laughs> there we go. Well, you have to identify if someone's going to be a threat or if they're, uh, you know, not a threat. So right. it starts there, you know, what, that at a very low level, your switch gets flipped to like, Hey, is this someone who might be an issue? And it carries through to whether or not you have to use some kind of non-lethal or possibly lethal, um, action. And then it carries on beyond that to like, hey, how do, what how do I um, comprehend what just happened? Because you know, this is actually one of the things I think uh, military is getting a lot better about is recognizing, yeah, you know, you're in the military. If you're in combat arms, if you're in the infantry, you're gonna go get in gunfights. You're gonna see dudes get killed. If you're in SF, you're gonna go get in gunfights. You're gonna see dudes get killed. Mm-hmm. But also starting to recognize, like, yeah, that is a part of the job description. But what is the, the long term effect that it's having on guys? And I think that you know we started to see that after we got to like what year ten yeah. <laughs> of the war. Now we're in like year fifteen. Yeah, 15. I mean, I know they're you know they're air quoting over, but <laughs> right. but what's what's that effect have? But also you know look at the individual guys in law enforcement, guys in the military you know, very type A, you know, personalities where we don't want to show weakness because we don't want our buddies to think that, you know, hey, I can't, I'm not going to be there for you um, because, you know, the team is the most important thing. Uh, So it's how do we create a culture where guys are like, they feel comfortable saying, hey, you know, uh, I'm burnt out Mm -hmm. or hey, 
you know, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, thinking about this one thing a little bit too much. And I know from, you know, my perspective in the military, uh, you know, we always had uh, psychologists at group. Um, that was, you know, one of the very uh, unique things that we had uh, um, offered to us. And the big army has them usually just at like the uh, medical centers or the hospitals. But there's a stigma about going in there. You don't want to go talk. You don't want your buddies to see right. you go in there and talk to them or go talk to the chaplain or whatever because it's just like, oh, is he okay? Um, so it's you're dealing with a stressful environment and then guys who are prone to not seek, you know, kind of help for that. So how do we create a training environment that is, you know, prepares guys for the tactical engagement? And then how do we create an organizational culture that allows guys to, you know, um, have, uh, I I guess like emotional resilience would be the best way to describe it. Um, I know at the tactical level, I think the best thing you can do is train someone so that they understand fundamentals and basics perfectly. Like you need to understand, you know, your marksmanship, you need to understand tactics at a very basic level. And then once you have that established, start to work with scenarios. Um, And then even when you do your scenarios, don't make them, uh, crazy or over the top because what we see is you know what you learn in training you're going to replicate in the real world and you know this with training on the range or training in the real world we're always again again we have a, a personality who's very you know type a you know guys in the military guys in law enforcement we oftentimes associate harder with better, mm-hmm. yeah. um, which is not always true. Harder can be dumber. Interesting. <laughs> harder, harder can be dumber. Um, so it's, you know, balancing, Hey, are we spicing up training? You know, what is the purpose behind this and what is it doing? So like when I'll teach a marksmanship class and I want to emphasize, you know, when you're shooting with an elevated heart rate and I want my students to shoot with an elevated heart rate, there is, a thousand ways I can have them get to that point where they have an elevated heart rate. I can have them do 20 burpees. I can have them maybe do a kettlebell carry or a short wind sprint that allows them to create, you know, an elevated heart rate. Then they go into a shooting exercise or, you know, whatever the task may be. And they get to experience that increased stress level. What I don't like seeing is when it becomes less about what your original objective is, whether it's uh, marksmanship or maybe some kind of scenario training and you just unnecessarily smoke a guy. So like, hey, you're going to go run, you know, two miles with a gas mask on. It's like, okay, but, you know, do I need to do that? And it can distract. You know, now, if your intent is to smoke the dude, all right, cool, yeah, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're trying to build, you know, uh, law enforcement officers, if you're trying to build soldiers who actually have a strong foundation of skills they can rely on, you can't bastardize it with uh, unnecessary flair Mm -hmm. um so it is each instructor's you know it's his own uh right to figure out how to structure training that way but you know i really subscribe to the the more or excuse me the less is more Mm -hmm. uh, outlook with hey you know let's let's make sure that we're really hitting the fundamentals up front for whatever the task might be whether it's you know uh, calling for fire putting a radio into operation or you know uh, pulling someone over Uh, let's make sure we're really hitting the fundamentals up front. So there's no, uh, you know, uh, mistakes as to what right looks like. Mm-hmm. And then if we want to spice it up, we'll spice it up, but do it in a purposeful manner. So 
like again with if it's just marksmanship training you know and i want someone to shoot with an elevated heart rate hey do 20 burpees cool now if it's a scenario and i want someone to have stress i'm not gonna be like in the middle of scenario like hey do 20 burpees before you go you know bound to cover or whatever like that would just be stupid (laughs) because it it distracts from what the objective is Mm -hmm. and um what is new hall is the new hall massacre the chp yeah Yeah. okay Mm -hmm. so that was right yeah classically argued yeah i i think of that where the guys had the shells in their in their pocket and i've heard before that that was just a rumor or that I've always heard that story is true for people who don't know. Uh, outside of California, New Hall was an incident um, where four, I think, CHP officers, right? Was it four is, or two? Might have been two. Anyway, so they, they encountered, this was back in, I think, the 60s. Uh, it, was, it was back when they were using wheel guns. So. Yeah, it was a good minute ago. Yeah, and um, anyway, they get they encounter this subject, and uh, two officers are shot and killed. And when the backup gets there, they find that the two CHP officers have their spent rounds from the revolver in their offhand because they're taught at the range, you know, pew, pew, pew. Mm-hmm. Don't dump your ammo on the ground because we got to clean it up. So they would dump it into their offhand and hold on to it. Yep. And uh, that, yeah, that, true or not, that's been used by my firearms instructors as, as an example of, mm-hmm. you know, train like you fight. And they even got away from using like the buzzer and they're trying to replicate uh, nowadays um, uh, that that trigger mm-hmm. for a threat rather than just a, a beep or shouting threat on the range or like you know it's like <laughs> they're trying to get closer and closer. But so I, but that's what Newhall is is, the, is yeah. the CHP officers were found with their spent casings in their hand. Yeah, it's funny you bring that up with the buzzer and the threat thing. Um, I had in all the training I'd done in SF, I had never once had someone scream threat, threat, threat <laughs> when I was on a range. It was just like, wait, what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> so the first time I ex- uh, experienced that, I was just at a normal range here and there was like some guy training. He was just like, all right, on my command. I was just kind of like listening to what's going on. He's like, threat. <laughs> I'm like, Whoa, what the, what's <laughs> yeah. going on? <laughs> That's pretty commonly used. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, it, it, ha- it has its utility, you know, it's, it's utility. It's, I mean, yeah. I, there's not, there's not many ways that you can, you know, replicate an actual. Yeah. Well, know, it's just funny when out. it's just funny when you see someone going to do like a reload drill and they're like threat. Like, well, he's just working on reloads. That's like, <laughs> you know, kind of <laughs> scream in his face. Uh, but so, yeah, uh, to answer that question about, you know, structuring stress at the tactical level, I think it really does come down to, um, you know, how you are setting up someone's mind for success. You know, the physical part, mm-hmm. you know, that, that, that comes, but we have to really prepare their minds for success. And if you do it wrong, man, they're, you know, guys are going to do what they do on the flat range. And, you know, obviously that's, you know, not always going to be the end all like, Hey, I'm going to do, I did 20 burpees on the flat range. I'm going to do 20 burpees. And like, no, like guys can differentiate, but Mm -hmm. you have to be very careful with how you structure your scenario drills. Like one of the, you know, the biggest things I've critiqued in the industry um, is like how guys are using vehicles. It's like, man, that can become very dangerous if you're not preparing a guy's mind for success by saying, Hey, this is how this thing works in the real world. And this is how you should interact with it yeah. versus just saying, Hey, this is a cool shooting drill. You know, I'm going to, you know, have a really fun drill where we shoot all these targets. But man, if you do some of that stuff in the real world, you can get fucking smoked. And mm-hmm. yeah, that's, that's no bueno. So that's, those are some steps you take as a, as an instructor. What about the things that you think are the key steps that your students or law enforcement or those people can take? Um, to help mitigate that stress. And you touched on it. I mean, like the repetition of the basics. So I am 
basic pistol and rifle marksmanship, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I imagine physical fitness and the preparedness there is is another one. Mm-hmm. Anything else um, from a mental uh, mindset, those kinds of things that you preach? Yeah, it it is more than just, you know, lifting weights and squeezing the trigger off. It is, you know, it is a mental thing, you know, priming yourself to say, hey, this is whatever the task is I want to accomplish. Um, and then uh, evaluating yourself at the end. It is, I think we waste a lot of time as tactical athletes not um, setting benchmarks or reviewing our performance. Um, you know, we'll... Uh, we'll go to the gym and we'll have a workout routine that we always do. And we'll, you know, we'll max out or something. Mm -hmm. We'll, we'll see how fast we can run, you know, a mile or two miles. Uh, marksmanship should be the same way. You should have benchmarks that you're holding yourself accountable to. Um, and for some reason that doesn't transfer over a lot. You know, we don't, well, it's, it's not as fun. That's why it's because it's more fun to go out with a box of ammo and some targets and say, I am going to shoot this. But if you're not collecting data on yourself, you're not going to improve. And that's actually where a lot of guys plateau is you have to do the boring, like I have to collect data on myself and I have to check in periodically to see where my performance is. I might have to actually go to the range to shoot instead of like, you know, making an Instagram video or (laughs) or something, you know. So, but you mean like a, like a benchmark shooting drill, something like that? Or like, because I'm curious about this is actually a really interesting idea because I mean, there's benchmark workouts like I mean, CrossFit's kind of a thing mm-hmm. about this show, and there's benchmark workouts there. I do a benchmark workout every couple months to kind of gauge where I'm at. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's never occurred to me to do a benchmark firearms drill, though. Yeah, there's uh, whether it's you know again you're focusing on marksmanship or stress inoculation. There are mm-hmm. there is you know, something you should be doing to measure performance. Otherwise what happens is you create this perception of your abilities and you know, the reality of it is very different. And if you're a tactical shooter, you know, if your perception of how your skills are on the flat range, you know, (laughs) you know, everything in the real world, I'd say gets dumbed down at least 20% or your performance suffers at least that much because you know, it, there's a lot of different things going on. You're, you could be fatigued, you could be stressed, you could be, you could already be shot or something. You sure. Know? Um, so your performance is going to be different. So if it takes you, you know, uh, three seconds to draw from your holster with a pistol, you know, it might take you five seconds, mm-hmm. six seconds in the real world when you got that cortisol dump or is that the right chemical to be using for? Yeah. Exactly. Okay, yeah. All right. Fair enough. Um, yeah, when you have that just dump of adrenaline, it's like, and you know, your ability to, you know, finally grab things like a pistol out of its holster, mm-hmm. it goes to shit because, you know, you're trying to draw, you're seeing something happen in front of you. And like you were saying earlier, like law enforcement has a lot of very close encounters where it's happening very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we don't create those benchmarks, then we don't know what we need to work on. Um, but also at the same time, it can give us, you know, that, uh, feeling of comfort knowing okay hey yeah i i can perform under these you know conditions of stress yeah. you know i can um it, you know do whatever the task may be mm-hmm. uh, well i at least know that this part of the equation is taken care of now re- with regards to what actually happens in the real world that's gonna be different but i know i've got this portion of my abilities taken care of it's you know it makes me think of a something that happened to me not long ago i kind of in that discussion of you know like you drop your your performance dropping and you actually hit uh, my example right on the head with drawing and drawing from a holster and, and, um, how, so I, I don't even remember the specific, um, 
call, but I ended up, I don't know, 15 feet away from my suspect. And it was one of the few times, luckily few, where for two and a half seconds of my life, I was convinced and certain that I had to shoot this person. Mm -hmm. And in those two and a half seconds was when, of course, you know, you're going for your holster and you're drawing and I was moving at the same time. And, um, yeah, I struggled with a little bit. Now it may have only been half a second or so that it slowed me. I don't, I honestly have no idea how much it may have slowed me down, but luckily that situation de-escalated very quickly and obviously didn't have to use force, but it was a good reminder, a teller, a teller of a weakness. Mm-hmm. Uh, after the fact, when I'm kind of reviewing these things in my mind that like I try to practice that, uh, that stress inoculation a little bit, but in the yeah real world situation with that real cortisol dump. Yep. And uh, I went to shit a little bit, just a little bit, but enough that it made me very uncomfortable. I'm like, okay, well, that's obviously something I gotta mm-hmm. gotta work on getting better at. So yeah, I think yeah, that's absolutely something that you know will make you a more well-rounded you know performer, whether it's you know marksmanship or whatever the task may be. I think the military has got it down pretty well with the whole stress inoculation thing because they can just take away your chow and your sleep. So if you go to if you go to like ranger school, you know they you know you get like on average, like three hours of sleep a night, I think, you know, when you're out in the field though, when you're actually doing like your patrols, you're out there for like a week or two weeks at a time. Yeah. You know, you are probably getting like no sleep the whole time. You might like get cat naps and stuff. Uh, so what you really start to see there with stress inoculation is the power of just repetition, you know, uh, like the benefit of just doing everything without any kind of like bastardized, you know, crazy stuff added into it. Like, you know, mm-hmm. like, you know, you don't need to karate kick someone in the face and then have them shoot El Prez, you know, <laughs> or you don't need to like duct tape someone's hands together and be like, ha, huh, you know, go shoot your pistol. Now it's like, that's fucking stupid. Right. Um, but what you see is if you do everything right, when you do have stress, people are going to fall back on, okay, Hey, you know, uh, you know, react to contact. Okay, cool. We're going to bound forward. All right, cool. This is what happens. And you start to see it, you know, at least on my side in the military, what I saw is when you're in those situations where, Hey, you know, we've been out in the field for six days now, you know, no one slept, you know, you're getting maybe like one meal or one MRE a day, MRE being a meal ready to eat. And so guys fall back to just what they know mm-hmm. and if they've been trained right they're gonna do it if they've been you know if they've had cool guy sexy training that's kind of been you know crazy and yeah you know ruin their understanding they might not perform at the same right level so you you get a, more, a lot more mileage i think out of just you know mastering the basics and what's that, that that classic uh we've we don't rise to the level of our expectations. We fall to the level of our training. Is that, that's I how think, it is, yeah, right? I think that's like one of the iterations. Yeah, one, one, of the, version of it yeah anyway. one version of it anyway. Yeah. We're talking somewhat physicality or the physical training, but what about do you have any mental training or mental rehearsals or any tips like that for, for your students? I think that priming yourself um, does have some significance. Uh, if you're, you know just recognizing your environment, what's going on, and then just also paying attention to how your body reacts to it, what startles you, what gets, you know, what activates that fight or flight mechanism. So at least you, you know, you understand why you're feeling a certain way. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it can also just, you know, uh, start kind of like a process for you where it's like, okay, you know, Hey, this is, you know, happening inter- or happening internally. Um, you know, 
and it's just kind of like a mental checklist you go through to actually like, Hey, I'm about to go do something. So like, uh, you know, when, you know, for myself personally, uh, like being overseas on deployment, if we're getting ready to go on a mission, you know, my, you know, priming myself, uh, for what's about to happen, you know, it starts with these routines, like checking my gear, you know, Mm -hmm. um, you know, checking, um, you know, my role and responsibilities on the mission, you know, just rechecking that, uh, looking at different aspects of the mission, uh, maybe like, you know, the route that we're taking. Um, and then just other small things that they, they could be as insignificant as, you know, I always eat this, you know, type of power bar or something before going out, but mm-hmm. it's just these, these mental things that you do that prime you. And sure. then so that when you actually do get out to, you know, you're, you're on your infiltration or you're on the objective or whatever, you know, you're, uh, you're in a certain mindset now yeah. that's obviously very different for, you know, someone like yourself in law enforcement where you're just constantly plugged into your environment and you're, you know, it, you don't know what could be yeah. happening. So it's, you know, it's a bit different, but you can still go through some similar processes. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, before you go out on patrol, there's, you know, I'm sure certain routines that you go through. Yeah. Say I, my, for me, same sort of thing. I kind of check my gear. I, I, the problem, you know, with us is like, you know, for you at least, I mean, in that, in those scenarios of the military, it's like you have a, you have a sense or an objective, right? You have an idea of what's going to happen. Now you may not know, really know what's going to happen when you get there, but you have a plan of, of, uh, of, of intent, I guess. Right. I mean, you have something mm-hmm. you need to go accomplish. And then when that's done, you're, you're going to mm-hmm. come back. I don't start any of my days with any of that. Right. I mean, I don't, I don't get into the beginning of my day and say, all right, today we're going to go yeah, out to this street <laughs> and we're going to, you know, set up a thing and then we're going to leave. Mm-hmm. It's 12 hours of, I don't know. We could be, I could be helping old ladies cross the street or I could, like yesterday, my partners, you know, end up in a high speed yep. pursuit with a amber alert suspect mm-hmm. who's shooting at him in a running gun battle through the streets, and they dump the guy, and that could be my day too. Yeah, and it's just a matter of dumb luck if I'm helping grandma across the street or I'm in a running gun battle. Mm-hmm. So I, for that's a real challenge for I th- us and me and everyone else. I think is like, how do you stay sharp with with mm-hmm. those lulls like that? So I do that kind of ritual of getting dressed very intently. Right, mm-hmm. checking my gear, being aware that what I'm putting on is body armor, being aware that I'm, you know, my boots are laced correctly or that they're that they're tied well, mm-hmm. and just kind of like going through my checklist of stuff. But once you're out in the in the day, and you know, admin gets a hold of you or mm-hmm. special projects or when it's just it is a roller coaster of trying to stay sharp. Mm-hmm. Real challenge. <laughs> Yeah, no, absolutely. It's it just becomes pickup basketball, I'd assume, where you know you constantly like, all right, I have this certain skill set, and I know this is what I might encounter, but I don't know what it's going to be, and so right, yeah, it is a very uh, unique challenge. Um, but you know, I, again, I think that priming yourself, having checklists, you mm-hmm. know, physically writing out your checklist also helps too. Like I had um, one of the things in my room where it was just a, a list of things I would check off, like, hey, you know, do you have your you know dog tags? Do you have your you know, the, your mission specific tasks, you have mm-hmm. your, you know, the info routes, do you have them memorized, stuff like that. It's yeah. just, again, something that you can set yourself up for success. Cause you can only, I mean, you can only set yourself up to a certain level of like, okay, I'm ready to go. You can't try to plan for everything that's going to happen out there. You know, right. Be, right. You right. would, you know, fatigue yourself trying to plan out what's going to happen in your 12 hour shift. That'd be insane. It'd be, yeah, it'd be exhaustive. Yeah. But what I found is once I, okay, so in the event of like a critical incident or something big that's in progress now, 
especially as a supervisor, um, I do start that same priming over again, specific to that call of, okay, what am I going to, what am I dealing with when I get there? What Mm -hmm. am I going to need? What am I going to do? What's my routine going to be? What weapon am I going to pull out? I I think we all do that mental rehearsal. I hope we all do some sort of mental rehearsal. You know, just grabbing the quick. (laughs) Yeah. Just, just grabbing the beanbag gun and hoping for the best, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Um, Went to reload my pistol mag and it was a Snickers bar. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Um, that seems to be a big, uh, 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 you know, you lessen the cognitive fatigue of the, t- the decision making when you rehearse those things, mm-hmm. uh, either in route or just in your in your downtime too. So, uh, let me ask, why did you get out of the military? If you don't mind me asking, the reason I got out of the military is a, a reason a lot of guys don't readily talk about. Um, and it's just cause I was burnt out, man. I mm-hmm. was, you know, I was, uh, I was getting tired of getting shot at and blown up uh, i don't know Aaron. that I seems mean, pretty reasonable <laughs> yeah well i mean but there you know i still got buddies in that are yeah. doing it and yeah. you know I'm, I'm not gonna sit here and complain because they're still out there doing the mission yeah um but you know a lot of guys they they get to that point where they're just like man i don't know if i can you know keep this up but no one ever says anything because like i said you got the buddy who's still going on the mission so you're not gonna say that you're not gonna say like oh yeah you know like you're not going to walk into the team room and be like, yeah, I'm getting out of the military because uh, I'm tired of this shit. Like, yeah. Because they'll just kind of turn their back on you and you don't want to lose that support structure. Sure. Um, so in 2012, I was in Afghanistan. That was my last uh, deployment. So eight years? Uh, almost nine years. Holy so cow. I was at the halfway point where, you know, traditionally a lot of guys in the military do 20 years and they get uh, to their retirement. So I got to that, you know, that point where I was kind of, you know, almost there at the halfway mark and I could see the rest of my career kind of mapped out, um, and what that meant. Um, but that, that last trip I had to Afghanistan, it was exhausting and it was, um, you know, it was, I was just tired after that. And it is, again, going back to one of the things we've been talking about earlier with the type of personalities that you find in law enforcement or the military is you don't ever want to show like any kind of weakness. You know, you don't want your buddies to think that you can't pull through for them. Mm-hmm. So it creates this culture where you don't talk about it. You know, you don't talk right. about how you're burnt out. You don't talk about how like, Hey man, like, you know, I'm not, you know, feeling okay. Um, so, and, well, and the other thing too, is like, you have buddies who got it worse. Like, you know, I, right. you know, I think we had a pretty intense deployment in Afghanistan, but I know, you know, I have buddies who had even more intense deployments because they don't have legs or, you know, right. they watch, you know, you know, members of their team, you know, you know, one after the other just get smoked. So it's mm-hmm. like, well, I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna start complaining over here. Uh, but that, that narrative and that culture is starting to change though. Right. Um, in the military, I know it is in special operations. I don't know if, I can't speak for the, you know, the rest of the military, but I know they're trying to do a much better job of recognizing, you know, Hey, you know, we've been asking a lot of these guys and they, they continue to put themselves forward. You know, what is the long-term effect of that? Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, just straightforward. And, uh, you know, after that last trip, I was like, man, I, you know, I can't keep, uh, doing this. This is, this is wearing me out, uh, you know, emotionally, and, uh, I decided to leave the military and, uh, look, you know, just move forward with a lot of the other opportunities that are out there in the private sector. And it's a, you know, transition is, I think a big thing, uh, again, whether you're in military and law enforcement, I think transition out of that support structure that you have out of that identity, 
out of that, um, you know, sense of purpose. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, it's hard for guys and it's also heartbreaking to see some of like, you know, the best dudes that, you know, that you've worked with, like some just amazing, you know, just warriors, um, just to watch them kind of crumble the moment they leave the military, the moment Mm -hmm. they leave the team, they leave that identity, Mm -hmm. the, you know, that positive feedback loop of, you know, Hey, I'm, you know, I'm, you know, I'm a green beret. Like, yeah. I have this sense of identity and purpose or, you know, so it's, you know, it's heartbreaking to see guys that just, you know, they struggle with the, um, I don't like to say the term reintegrate <laughs> back into society, but just like, you know, the cultural shit. Yeah. Um, I heard an interesting theory yesterday and maybe you can chime in on this is that some of those, some of these guys don't are, they're, they're having a problem, not because of something maybe that they experienced because, they're perfectly capable of, of handling that experience. It's when they leave that close knit community and they go back out into the, the general community, the, mm-hmm. the American citizenry where we are at odds with each other a lot, mm-hmm. either uh, racially or politically or socially, you know, whatever. Like, mm-hmm. and we, we as a, an American society aren't as tightly knit and aren't as um, kind of in it for each other as, as the teams are. That that's where they kind of lose it. I thought, oh, that's that's kind of an interesting take on it. That is, uh, that's very accurate. I think you know, um, I joined the military when I was eighteen, so that was like you know the culture that I knew throughout my entire adult life up mm-hmm. until um, you know two thousand thirteen, uh, the summer of two thousand thirteen when I got out. So yeah, that team based aspect of shared purpose and vision, you know, um, you know, working together to accomplish a task, you know. Uh, being genuinely in, interested in you know someone else's uh, life or mm-hmm. you know what they value, uh, yeah, a lot of that goes away in the private sector where uh, you know it's like you know no one no one else is going to look out for your self interest like you have to look out for yourself, but just you know the uh, um, people putting forth the minimal amount of effort <laughs> you know mm-hmm. for a team or, you know, the company or whatever it is. Or their uh, fellow citizen. Or, yeah, or their fellow ci- Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, I, have it, to, I have to imagine that, like, for you or any anyone coming back from that and then coming back to seeing some of the things that we do to each other, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's kind of maddening to, like, like th- these... I don't know, this is going... I'm going off in a total different... No, no, I, this is... No, this is interesting because, like, I had, you know... I spent my entire, like I said, my entire adult life up until I was 28, um, on the teams. So like my, you know, idea of like being social with someone, obviously like, you know, a team environment is very different, you know, you you can be very crass and, you know, you can behave differently, but the way that the level that of which you interact with another person, I think is very in depth. Sure. Um, and then when I got just, you know, out into, you know, when I was just a nobody in the real world, Nobody in the real world. <laughs> I feel Country like song. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, uh, people are, I, at first I couldn't tell if people were just completely apathetic towards everything or if they were, um, uninterested cause they were selfish or w- what it was, which is like, people are just generally disinterested with anything that does not immediately reward them or further their, um, their narrative or their goal, whatever it mm-hmm. is. And I was just like, Oh, this is weird. You know, like I, you know, I don't have to, uh, you know, be, uh, have the same interest as you, but I can at least talk to you and find out why, you know, you're passionate about that. And, you know, I just find a lot of people, uh, or I found a lot of people like my age or our age, 
Um, it's just appreciate you for looping me in on that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> our you own age, it. you own our, it. Our age must be a very flexible range. <laughs> yeah, well, it just you own an iPhone. We must be the same. <laughs> which Snapchat handle, bro? Yeah. Which, <laughs> um, but yeah, it's just you know the depth to which people connect over um, either like nothing or you know, like the absence of depth. There, mm-hmm. it's just like okay, like this is weird that people are. Um, you know, I don't know if self-centered is the right word, but just if there's nothing in it for me, I don't care. It's like, oh, that's weird. So. Yeah. So uh, here's a question. Um, we talk about like community and, and, and kind of joining. The one thing that is super popular right now, and it's always been popular, but um, growing more and more, I think, with um, the, the closer that police departments align with um, sometimes the military or sometimes or the growing threat to law enforcement too is the warrior mindset. This idea of the, you know, the just like you're, we're warriors or whatever mm-hmm. like that. And I'm getting more and more uncomfortable with that word in the context of me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm not uncomfortable with it. In, in, like f- for you in service there, I mean, you're, so I'm, I'm sitting across the table from a warrior, but I get more and more uncomfortable with using it in context of me or in law enforcement. So how do I phrase this? For 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 someone who is unquestionably an, uh, a a warrior, what's your take on the current use of that term, uh, either as it applies to just law enforcement or civilians who uh, who kind of attach to that, or or even for the military? I think that there's a lot of different directions you could go with that. I think there's the professional narrative where you know you're talking about guys in the military or you're, you're talking about guys in law enforcement and you, like you said maybe warriors not the best word but i think a lot of guys in law enforcement have like you know the warrior spirit they have the warrior mindset and i understand that they might have you know a very different mission set but i can i've seen a lot of dudes and i've worked with you know a lot of guys that i've trained it was like hey i can recognize that you have the same values and outlook towards um you know your mission as like guys that I worked with, you know, the, uh, the Rangers that I worked with, the other SF guys I worked with, like you have that warrior um, spirit, but I understand where you can't, you can kind of come into a, uh, uh, you know, if it might feel weird to be like, yeah, we're warriors. Like, or well, yeah, like, my challenge, I guess, is that, you know, it's like we're warriors, but we're out even the, even our bad guy, like your bad guy is a, is a, is a, is a bad guy that everyone agrees upon, right? The, mm-hmm. the, the Taliban or the, any of those people, um, ISIS, those are, those are bad guys. And, I, and most any American will agree with that. Mm-hmm. My bad guy is a fellow citizen. Yeah. And so even if there, and, and there's, there's people just like this guy yesterday, unspeakable evil mm-hmm. that they can commit against their fellow citizens, but they're still a citizen. And my op, my, uh, theater of operations is my community. Mm-hmm. So I understand why pe- I, I'm more and more. I'm understanding why people are sensitive to that, mm-hmm. our use of it. Yeah, and you know, there yeah, the professional context of, you know, that that warrior mindset and then um e- even just like the regular uh I guess civilian use of it. Um you know, nothing I I really dig the uh group of Americans that, you know, they believe in like their second amendment rights. They believe in, you know, uh, being self-reliant, you know, uh, being responsible for their own safety and are interested in their own personal defense. And then there's also this idea of like, you know, the warrior mindset that's been highly commercialized with like the, uh, I, I guess the best way to describe it would be like the, like the tact, 
tactical industrial tactical, complex right. or something. Yeah, there's a lot of that. And, and it kind of, well, and but it shifts the meaning right. of it where it's like, you know, a, a guy like yourself or a guy like myself, we can say something like, hey, the warrior mindset and understand what we're meaning. But then there's also a cultural shift based off of like, okay, well, how are other people interacting with this, you know, word? Is it like something that is a description that they truly respect? You know, they respect the discipline of, you know, whether it's, you know, marksmanship or being self-reliant or, you know, looking out for their community or for them, is it just wearing an ISIS hunter t-shirt and a pair of 511s? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then going on the internet right. and being like, that's not how you, that's not how you shoot a gun. Like, Hashtag oh. sheepdog. Like, yeah. Hash- <laughs> <laughs> I'm sitting across from Garrett in my Mohan, Mohan yeah. Labe. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, that's interesting. Cause it, it's, yeah. So there's the professional narrative and, you know, and then there's the commercial narrative and it's like, okay, so which one, which one is which mm-hmm. then, you know, is, is the warrior, the guy who's saying like ISIS hunter, like I don't need to wear an ISIS hunter t-shirt cause I'm in the fucking military and I go kill ISIS, right. you know, like, and I don't need, I don't need to talk about it. Right. You know, or like the, you know, the guy in law enforcement who's like very difficult mission set, you know, just ask what you were saying earlier with, you got a 12 hour shift. You don't know what's going to happen. Um, you know, what does that warrior mentality mean? Or, you know, what does it mean for the guy who's just taking Instagram pictures and arguing with everyone on the internet Right. in his, uh, you know, multi wearing his multi-cam tuxedo to go, <laughs> <Multi-cam>. <laughs> go uh, shopping for groceries and just waiting for someone to challenge him. So do you but, think it's appropriate that law enforcement is, uh, uses or aligns with the, the warrior mindset? I don't see why, you know, again, a lot of the, dudes that I've met, a lot of the guys in SWAT that I've trained, they, you know, they embody a lot of the same, Mm -hmm. uh, characteristics and personality traits as the guys that I worked with on the teams. You know, obviously it, you know, you guys are held under a microscope. If you start saying like, we're warriors and we're going to go, you know, shoot guys in the face, you know, you guys are held accountable on a very high level. Yeah, that doesn't look good. And that happens. That happens. But like, I think, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with saying like, yeah, the warrior mindset like you know like hey uh, physical fitness hey marksmanship hey you know uh martial arts Mm -hmm. um being a leader being self-reliant you know i don't think there's anything wrong with that use of the word yeah um you know whether it's law enforcement or a guy who's a a truck driver in the military you can still have the warrior mindset um and have different jobs it's just again when you get into like the more commercial context uh, it starts to really devolve the uh the significance yeah uh well i gotta uh, yeah well i want to talk about your training and all that so okay so you you got out of the military Mm -hmm. that seems completely reasonable (laughs) and then um you develop guerrilla approach what's the whole whole the the the, uh, so the whole title or i mean the guerrilla approach is your is the name of your firearms training yeah so The guerrilla approach. So, what is what Sun is that? Sun Tzu defines the art of war. No, <laughs> no. So the guerrilla approach it goes back to that unconventional warfare mission that SF has, where you know you're going to be working with you're you're going to be working with, with brown dudes and flip flops. <laughs> I can say that because I'm a brown dude. Um, you're going to be working with you know indigenous personnel yeah. and very ambiguous situations we call uh, it non-permissive environments non-permissive <laughs> environments i have to work that into a i'm going to work that into a report sometime <laughs> say my safe space is your non-permissive environment <laughs> um so it uh you know you're working through that cultural barrier that cognitive barrier 
and you know you're training guys that you're going to take out on missions with you're going to take them out on hits with you so that really sharpens um your uh, abilities as an instructor in that you know when you're working again through the cognitive barrier the language barrier and the cultural barrier you can't add in any bullshit in your training you need to train those guys to a standard so that they understand the fundamentals of whatever the task is, whether it's going to send in an ambush or set up a traffic stop. They need to understand what that is. And you need to be able to adapt very quickly in training because, you know, it's guaranteed that whenever you're working with uh, indigenous personnel that they're just going to ask, you know, the why question. And you've probably seen this a lot in law enforcement. I've seen a lot in military where we adopt training methodologies that don't really make sense. We just adopt them because, you know, the guy before us said it and the guy before him said that. Mm-hmm. And we don't really think about what it is that we're doing. So when you're in that, you know, that unconventional warfare environment, you have to figure out how to effectively explain something, you know, adjust on the fly. And you can't take shortcuts. You can't take shortcuts because, you know, that dude that you're training in flip flops with an AK is going to be the guy on your left and your right. And if you take shortcuts with him or if you try to do stupid stuff to jazz up training that distracts his learning process, it could be you getting smoked because of it. So that's where I got, you know, the idea for the gorilla approach was, you know, hey, my approach, not my approach, SF's approach with training gorillas is just, you know, no nonsense, you know, brilliance in the basics, kind of a crawl, walk, run structure, Mm -hmm. which is very different than, you know, a lot of the commercial training industry where it's just the, uh, whatever's the flashiest thing or whatever's the newest thing, Mm -hmm. you know, that's what people associate with being right. You know, if I wanted to be, if I wanted to make a million dollars, I would just light myself on fire and put it on Instagram and then shoot a gun. And then people would be like, Oh, this is awesome. You know, call yourself instructor one or something. (laughs) (laughs) Instructor zero is already taken. Yeah. Well, (laughs) yeah. If I wanted to make the most money in this industry, I would have no background. And then I would, yeah. Well, okay, so I'm not going to ask you to dime anybody out, but you're. <laughs> I think you already did. <laughs> I, I I took one. I'll take the hit <laughs> yeah. for that. I don't. I'm not afraid of that one. But um, you know, there's only one of you, and um, you know, you do your trainings uh, around the country. Uh, but how can so, so someone who's looking to you know, the challenge we have is that I, I kid you not, there's been times or there's been quarterly qualifications where. With budget cuts and everything else, they hand me five bullets and they go, "All right, here's your call for the quarter." I'm like, "Really? Five five bullets? Huh? That's mm-hmm. all you guys can can afford?" So a lot of us seek out this extra training on our own, buy our own ammo, go out and shoot on the range. Um, we want to get good training from knowledgeable people. What what's a good process for people? How, how do how do they know they're not getting bullshitted? You know, if if they can't come to your class, and, and <laughs> I ask you this specifically because you are on your Instagram. You're honest about your opinion about some of these other um, schools, not not name not naming them. I would but, say the but schools, like, but the, the methodology. The methodology I yeah, guess. that's yeah, the more so. But how, so how does someone weed out, you know, legitimate training versus showy fancy? I, I think that a good metric is well, one, what's the dude's background? Mm-hmm. That's that's the biggest thing. Um, is Hey, if I'm a guy teaching you about, you know, gunfights, have I ever been in a gunfight? That's a pretty big, I think, qualifier Mm -hmm. for, you know, that kind of training. Now, are there guys 
you know, there's guys in law enforcement in the military that can do, you know, 25 year career and never get in a gunfight, but they can teach you probably a lot about tactical marksmanship. You know, it, it just certain things happen in your career that determine whether or not you actually get in the firefight or two yeah. or three or 10 or whatever. I was, I, 10 years in, I'd still have a hard time wrapping my head around what it, the, the, just the, the sheer dumb luck or bad luck or good luck or whatever it is of being yeah. the guy that gets in those. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So the, that's, that's the biggest thing is credentials. And I look at training, uh, in two ways, uh, range training. So there's marksmanship and then there's tactical training. Um, if you're doing tactical training upfront credentials, you know, a dude should come from, you know, I think, you know, the most elite, uh, component of that organization, or you should seek out that individual because there's, you know, a chance that they're probably going to have, you know, um, a better grasp of stuff. You know, I'm not saying that other guys can't, but you know, if you're using just, you know, a filtering system, that's, yeah. that's a great way to go about it with regards to marksmanship. I think that you should keep an open mind and be willing to learn from, you know, everybody, uh, I go shoot, uh, different competitive matches and, you know, you can learn something from different people. Now you still have to have some kind of, um, uh, uh, legitimacy factor in there. If someone's, you know, telling you something that's like, uh, that might work for you. It might not work for me, but I think you should keep as open of a mind as possible with marksmanship. You know, if there's some fat dude that can, you know, run the hell out of a pistol, like, cool, take his class. He might not be like, you know, Mr. Tactical operator, CrossFit guy, but if he can teach you something about cycling the gun, awesome. Now with tactical training, which is, you know, really more the area that I focus on credentials is the biggest thing. And then, uh, if they've actually done the thing that they are talking about. And then three, when you're in the training program or when you're doing your research, um, how far do they deviate away from uh, basic, you know, fundamentals, you know, uh, explaining basic tasks, you know, mm -hmm. is if they are going to have, you know, some spiced up training where maybe you're doing like, you know, like I said, you're going to do 20 burpees before you shoot your gun are they explaining, Hey, the, you know, the reasoning behind this is to have you shoot with an elevated heart rate and they're not, you know, distracting from what the overall objective is, which is, you know, the marksmanship component, you know, how far, you know, are, are they turning the range event into a CrossFit with shooting or is it still shooting with some physical exercise? Mm -hmm. And that can be hard for guys to identify because, uh, we've seen this paradigm shift in, how courses are marketed because of social media, you know, five years ago, um, a lot of the stuff that we see on the internet, we would have just laughed at and been like, Oh yeah, whatever. But like now, like today, 2016, you see the same ridiculous stuff and you laugh at it, but then you check back in a week later and you're like, Holy crap, that dude's teaching people. And you're like, yeah, what the, you know, that's, you know, that's, that's, that's something else. So, it, it can be confusing for the guy who has no background. So like, what about just the, you know, the armed citizen that wants to be self-reliant wants to, you know, he's into the personal defense aspect. Mm -hmm. um, how does he filter that out? Because, you know, like I don't know anything about golf and if I wanted to go uh, other than I would love drinking beer while playing <laughs> golf. That's, hey, we play golf the same way. <laughs> yeah, we, uh, Same outlook there. <laughs> uh, but if I was shopping around for golf instructors and I saw a dude who was wearing, you know, the funny clothes and, he had some really nice looking clubs and what he said seemed to be making sense. Right. I'd be like, okay, yeah, I'll pay him. Um, and then, you know, I might not know if I'm getting a quality product. Um, I might be enjoying it, but you know, enjoying something is very different from learning. You know, right. You can have fun while you're learning, but you know, 
sometimes the best learning takes place when you know there is you know yeah that absence of that still not factor e- effective right so i i think that the best way people can set themselves up for success is you know if you don't have those that if you're not in law enforcement if you're not in the military to where you can kind of identify what right looks like or you have some idea um just take classes from you know different people you know like hey you know I, there's this i'm really into you know uh, uh concealed carry or whatever like all right so go to different guys that present themselves as experts in those areas and that'll help uh, round out your understanding of what's going on. But the number one thing I can recommend is uh, just not go straight onto the internet and start telling people, this is how you do something because then you're part of the problem. (laughs) I took one two day rifle class. This is how you shoot from a vehicle. Like, Whoa, what the heck's going on? Yeah. I was, uh, (laughs) I was gonna, I, I, Prepping for today, I I, Google, I went on YouTube and like typed in firearms instructor and and the the gobs and gobs of uh, hits that came back on it, mm-hmm. and I just got I went a couple of pages deep on stuff, and I was seeing some interesting setups. Well, <laughs> that, that way, you know, and that's what inspired me to take the. Um, the stance that I have in just like the training industry. So I, to be honest, until I got out of the military in 2013, I really didn't know anything about the commercial um, side of training. You know, I was very fortunate in that, you know, being an SF, we had, you know, awesome individuals. We had awesome cadre guys that, you know, had lots of experience. Um, We could do a lot of training on our own and any kind of commercial school we did go to, we were aware of like, hey, you're going to this, you know, shooting and driving school where the shooting part's kind of meh, but the driving part is awesome. So, you know, just know that that's why we're sending you there. Mm. So we had, you know, these uh, ways for filtering out what was, you know, kind of nonsense. Um, so when I first started doing research into the commercial training industry in uh, like 2013, 2014, my, I was just like, just what you were describing when I went on the Internet. I was just like, what the crap <laughs> is going on? And it was this thing where I was like, you know, am I the, you know, the only person that's like, no, there's no way I'm the only person that's like, what the right. crap's going on? And then you, you, you discover that it's, you know, a lot of it's just clever marketing. It's, uh, yeah. it's, you know, leveraging someone's, you know, you know, they might have a credential, yeah. but it might be very, you know, modest. And then just marketing the hell out of it. And it's like, okay, I can see a lot of good marketing. Yeah. That's, that's essentially what it is, but that's, you know, what motivated me to take the, the stance I did with, you know, the uh, critiques that I write or the polemics that I write is that again, when it comes to marksmanship, keep an open mind, you know, you Mm -hmm. you might learn something from, you know, a 12 year old three gun champ or something. You can (laughs) hunters and even those. Yeah, absolutely. But when it comes to tactics, like, man, there's a cutoff point where it's like, if you, are bastardizing the stuff that we learned because guys have gotten killed. So we build our foundation of tactics off of, you know, what does work and what doesn't work. If you're Mm -hmm. bastardizing what that is because you're trying to fill a class, that's a, I think that's just like really intellectually dishonest, you know? Yeah. So that got me to the point where I was like, all right, the internet doesn't want to see they don't want to see another video of a guy showing you how to reload a gun. They don't want to see another video of you saying, hey, this is how you draw from the holster. We've got plenty of those videos out there. Uh, what I think they want is, you know, shooters, they want to see a discussion on, hey, this is why I believe in something and here's why. Not just like, hey, this is fucking stupid. You know, that's, right. you know, 
that's not where you put your flashlight on your gun. You know, like that's, that's, that's dumb. There's no reason to have that, but to have like a legit discussion about like, Hey, you know, these guys are teaching tactical classes and they're putting out stuff. That's like, Hey man, I understand that what you're trying to say might have some internal validity for that specific exercise. But in the real world, that's going to get dudes killed. And that's, that's something, that's something, yeah, that's something that should be discussed. And, you know, uh, people responded to it. They're like, you know, I I think that's the silent majority responded. They're like, okay, cool. Cause I get a lot of DMS on direct messages on Instagram. I don't know why I had to explain what DM was as, as if a podcast audience didn't know what Uh, I'd be surprised. (laughs) (laughs) But I get a lot of messages where guys are just like, Hey man, that's, this is really awesome. What you're putting out like, Hey man, this this is pretty cool. You know, I, you know, a lot of guys have a similar narrative where they're like, Hey, I, you know, I thought I was the only one that was like, what the crap's going on. They're just like, you know, you know, thank you for being, you know, providing some kind of, uh, you know, discussion here. Some brevity to this. It reminds me of a, you know, watch, or do you follow the article 15 guys at all? Yeah, they, I'm familiar with their Matt stuff. Best. He put out, and they have a funny video how to be tactical. Yeah, <laughs> and they kind of make fun of all these. Uh, yeah, they, they YouTube. They went for everybody. They, oh, they went after everybody. Yeah, I'll put it in the show notes because it's just it's kind of it's funny based on the topic we're talking about. Like, yeah, that was yeah that yeah they go after a lot of the rock star instructors. And oh yeah, I mean they go after like Chris Costa and, and Instructor Zero yeah. and um, a couple others. But so uh, here's a here's a question I'm always curious about. Uh, you know, cops are, cops are a funny group, very closely aligned with military guys. A lot of, uh, veterans are cops, right? And, and we have a lot, I have a lot of partners who left, uh, left the law enforcement side to go do a tour, you know, in the national guard or reserves or signed up. Um, but you know, my perspective is, or my, my experience is just on the law enforcement side, but you know, we go to a class, we all sit in the back. Uh, you know, nobody, nobody fills up the front. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to get cops to do anything. Like we, we're, we are, um, a, as a group, um, I don't know. We're naturally we're, skeptical. We're naturally everything. skeptical. Yeah. We're reluctant, um, to, I don't know. We, we, you know, we, we're skeptical of everything. I guess we'll go with that. You well, know I think I mean? it's so, a byproduct of your job where, you know, yeah. you have to, I mean, to your, your skepticism and your cynicism is what keeps you alive. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're also sometimes, um, a, t- a tough crowd, I guess is what I'm getting at, right? Mm-hmm. We're, we're a tough crowd. So what, what's some of your biggest challenges when you're teaching law enforcement officers, maybe versus a civilian or maybe someone who's come out of the military? The biggest, uh, so with guys, professional guys, guys employed by the state, like military law enforcement, the biggest issue I have is running into the 22 year old version of myself on the range. <laughs> who is, uh, you know, very eager to get after it, wants to prove himself. And as a result of that, likes to, uh, um, uh, disagree because it it feels empowering. It feels Mm -hmm. like you're in control of the situation or makes you feel like, you know, something because, you know, nobody, nobody wants to admit like, Hey man, I don't know how to do that. You know, especially, you know, the more time you get on a team or you're, or in law enforcement, it's like less likely you want to be saying like, I don't know how to do yeah, that. Yeah. There's right. an expectation. You already know how. Yeah. yeah. So that's the biggest issue I run into is running into 22 year old, um, cherry <laughs> Sergeant Aaron <laughs> Baruga is the guy who's just kind of like, you know, uh, just very motivated, very cynical though, and wants to be right. 
Um, so it's, it's finding out how to mentor, um, those guys. And you know, it's, again, I was like, you know, I was like that when I was, I think we're all like that at that age, right? Yeah. Where you just like, you want to find, it's a control thing. If I can disagree with this, I'm right, you know, Mm -hmm. or it makes me feel experienced. It makes me feel like I have some kind of veterancy. Um, I don't know if I just made up a word there with veterancy. I like it. Yeah. We'll go with it. We're going to roll with it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, is, is teaching that guy and, teaching so the easy thing to do is you can just embarrass him up front but then he's not going to learn anything right he's so gonna you shut down on yeah you. he's and then it's you know you're not doing him any favors or his team any favors so you know a lot of you know some guys will just like bring that guy in front and be like make him demo something and you can all see where his weaknesses are mm-hmm. uh, but again that might just shut him down because then it'll just become really self-conscious and he won't learn you know the rest of the time that you're there training uh so it's it's figuring out how to read the, the class. So you have your objectives, you know, your training objectives is like, Hey, we will end the day with like, you know, uh, in-depth discussion on shooting and moving or whatever. Um, but then you have to also look at the performance aspect of it too, where it's like, Hey, what is this group getting? Are they, you know, do I need to sh- stick to the strict timeline that I have of like, you know, Hey, at 10 AM, we're shooting this drill at 11 AM, we're shooting mm-hmm. this drill at 12 PM, we're shooting this drill. Or do I need to be able to modify my material? And that goes back to that whole guerrilla approach thing. Right. Look at me plugging my own company in the middle. Oh, of we're going to get to that in a second. <laughs> no, but that goes back to uh, what I learned in SF where, you know, when you're running a range, you have an idea of what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And then you might have to adjust because, hey, it turns out uh, maybe these guys need a lot more work on their trigger control. Hey, maybe they need a lot more work on their ability mm-hmm. to focus and you know, rapidly process information. So it's being able to adjust on the fly. If you have, you know, um, uh, difficult personalities, uh, I, I think the best way to deal with them is to just engage with them, you yeah. know, and then, you know, don't be confrontational, but just like, you know, Oh, Hey, you know, like, why do you think this? Like, okay. All right. So, uh, gorilla approach, you explained, um, the concepts and, and, and kind of that idea, where can people go to learn more about, uh, you know, taking a class from you and your methodology and your, your, um, your mindset. So if they want to learn about my methodology, they should go to soldier systems and just look up any of the different pieces I've written for them. Um, a lot of the topics that I discuss are, you know, uh, they're intended to uh, start a discussion about, you know, what seems to be very mainstream but why it's also contradictory to what actually happens in the real world. So like what we were talking about earlier, where a lot of training is just, it's not very legitimate. It's just very cleverly marketed. Mm -hmm. So that'll uh, cue them into a lot of my, um, my approach, if you will, with uh, training. And then the website is just uh, gorillaapproach.com. Gorilla spelled like, like uh, gorilla warfare, not gorilla at the zoo. (laughs) You'd be surprised. (laughs) I know. (laughs) That's why I'm saying it. Yeah. Um, and then obviously there's the, uh, social media handles, which is, uh, just gorilla underscore approach on Instagram. And then Facebook is just gorilla approach, um, for the page. Yeah. You, sh- you post a lot of cool videos. So if, if for anyone who's on Instagram, you got to check out and, and follow you cause, um, you'll post stuff up there. I'm like, Oh man, that looks like a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it's been interesting, you know, just navigating the whole Instagram thing because it is an incredible, uh, platform for, uh, engaging with your audience. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also just, 
it's it creates this weird window where it's like you see a lot of stuff and you're like is that what people you know are thinking or Mm -hmm. you know just just what sticks so obviously there's like the entertainment component then there's like you know guys like myself who go in there and they'll you know discuss something um and then there's the guys or the gals that just like you know take pictures in their underwear or something with a gun it's like i don't understand what that's supposed to be for but okay yeah yeah <laughs> i was gonna say something but i'm not going to about the whole the instagram celebrity kind of yeah. thing but that's a thing that's a thing of our generation Do you know that there's actually a convention in la for like youtube stars like people who want to become a youtube star or an instagram star oh. or twitter and they're like there's a whole convention and they teach them how to you know do all these things and there's no discernible like talent to it it's just like oh i want to be a youtube star well to be fair some of the people that are very successful at that, there's a lot of work that goes into it. I mean, they make oh, no it, doubt. They yeah. make it seem very raw in that, you know, I have an iPhone or a GoPro and I just film something. But there is a, a lot of, you know, a narrative that goes into, you know, what they're going to be saying right. or work right, right. with the narrative and then a lot of editing. Um, but, then, but it's just funny how it's a thing now, though. Yeah, like, yeah, no, everyone used to be want to be a TV or movie star, but now people want to be YouTube stars yeah. or Instagram stars. You know what I'm saying? Well, I think uh, Gawker just did it article about how the whole influencer economy is like mm-hmm. collapsing in on itself yeah. about how you know the hey i'm taking a picture with my you know protein powder or whatever it's like yeah people are starting to get away from that because it's they're, they're smelling it well everyone the bs yeah everyone's doing it right well speaking of instagram whores uh follow me on <laughs> at the squad room aaron you can follow aaron on instagram at uh like i said gorilla approach uh gorilla underscore approach gorilla is g-u-e-r-i-l-l-a two r's so, oh gosh, even I got it wrong. Gorilla, two R's, underscore approach. Gorilla approach, G U E R R I L L A, underscore A P P P R O A C H. Thank you for clarifying that. I'm going to blame that on my spell check for not catching that when I wrote all these down. But check it out for some um, some cool videos. Uh, the website is gorillaapproach.com. To follow the squad room, it's uh, at the squad room, both on Instagram and Twitter. Our website is thesquadroom.net. Head over there for show notes for this and some links to the videos we talked about and some a link up to some of your uh, solar systems articles as well. So people have one place to go for all that. Uh, if you have a moment, please consider leaving a review on iTunes, everybody. It really helps out the show. Uh, again, I want to thank SB Tactical and the iCombat Training System for their support of the show. Check them out. And check out their individual officer, iCombat Pro, at sbtactical.com, where pre-sor- uh, for orders are already being taken. Aaron, thanks for coming by, man. This was a lot of fun for me. Um, nice to get to know you. Thank you for your service. It's Memorial Day weekend, so I'm sure that, uh, you know, um, I mean, this won't come out on Memorial Day, but um, really nice to talk to you today on, on, on that day. And with um, with that in my mind, and then, you know, with like these uh, events of yesterday on my mind, too, of, of, of us. So thanks for what you do for law enforcement. Your support of law enforcement, obviously, thanks for your service, too. Um, some really great concepts uh, that I got out of you um, in terms of the warrior mindset and the commercial versus the professional. I like that. That was interesting. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to I'm gonna have to think on that one for a while. Uh, you, have to take your, you have to take your Moan Lave <laughs> Tonight We Dine in Hell shirt off. <laughs> yeah. but, uh, but, no, it was, it was a lot of fun, um, fascinating um, path that you've taken mm-hmm. to get here and i appreciate you sharing uh, sharing your knowledge now with all of us i appreciate it thanks for having me on garrett yeah, thank you